0: Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of Pensions Experts' fortnightly podcast. On the show this week, the government is getting creative in imagining new ways to solve the housing crisis that don't involve building more houses. Ministers, once they reach a certain level of seniority, seem to become convinced that they can trample all over the laws of supply and demand without consequence, and Pensions Minister Guy Opperman is no exception. We'll discuss whether, with his suggestion, that savers may dip into their pension parts to find deposits for home buying. He has succeeded, where countless of his forebears have failed. Next, uh, moving from a discussion about the proper functioning of free markets to one about the NHS, where nothing so trifling as economics exists, what we might euphemistically describe as administration shortcomings are a pox on the NHS pension scheme. We'll take a look at what they are and whether anything could be done to remedy them. Uh, I'm Benjamin Mercer, I'm a reporter at Pensions Expert, and I'm joined today by a slight cold, for which my apologies, but also and more excitingly by Helen Morrissey, Corporate PR Specialist, Long-Term Savings at Royal London, and by Peter Glancy, Head of Policy Development at Scottish Widows. Thank you both very much for joining me. Let's start by fixing the uh, the housing crisis, shall we? And I think we can probably move on to fixing the health service before lunch. So, pensions minister Guy Opperman did stop short of announcing plans to let savers, young people in particular, uh, raid their pension pots to stump up the cash for deposits. But he did say in a webinar hosted by Prospect Magazine that the door is open for offers for uh, for others. Sorry, that the door is open for others to bring ideas to him. Pete, if I can begin with you, because I think you've in the past written in favour of this proposal, notwithstanding my cynicism of the introduction, I am genuinely curious to find out how it can be that that such a a policy could not incur inflationary um, impacts on on housing prices. Do you want to set the argument for us?
1: I I think that the challenge here, that Britain's facing three savings challenges. We're facing a challenge of ensuring that people have enough to to live on when they retire. We face a, a challenge that there's a growing number of people 10 million households have nothing put aside for a rainy day, no financial resilience, and we have a generation of millennials who can't get on the property ladder and who will end up spending at least half of their hard saved pension pots uh, handing that money over to private landlords. So we need to do something about that. So we, we need to come up with a, a long-term savings policy for the country that helps people address all three of those challenges more holistically. I think the minister was open to suggestions as to how the auto-enrollment framework and ecosystem might be used to improve the savings levels across all three of those challenges. Nest have been experimenting with a sidecar, which, which is looking at how can we use auto-enrollment to address financial resilience. We, at the moment, we have a, a separate product, Liza, out completely on its own from that ecosystem that's, that's helping people to save uh, They go on the housing ladder and for retirement. So I think the idea here isn't to to use pensions as, as a deposit. It's how do, we, how do we utilize what we've learned from auto enrollment and use that ecosystem to help people save for all three of those challenges in a more joined up fashion. In terms of the, the supply and demand point, I would use an analogy. If we wanted to persuade people to drink less coffee and drink more tea, we wouldn't necessarily be pe- encouraging people to drink more hot drinks. What we need to try and do here is encourage or enable people to have less people renting more people owner-occupier so that they're not handing over half of their hard-end pension pots to private landlords when they retire. It's not about increasing the demand for housing. To do that, you would need to have more people. And this isn't about a fertility drive. It's about helping people get onto the property ladder.
0: Good. We'll we'll come on to unpack some of that in just a minute. But um, Helen, just so I know how much of the critique I'll be doing myself, where do you stand on this idea? Are you supportive of it? Are you a critic or undecided?
2: so so when i you know initially saw the headlines you know this whole idea of early access to help you know purchase a house you know i i kind of you know sighed heavily because you know we we've you know over the years we've had you know on several occasions you know the whole thing of early access being used to mend a variety of ills you know whether it be you know the housing crisis or people in financial distress for instance during the financial crisis of 2000 2008 2009 there was a lot of talk as, as to whether people could get early access you know if they were struggling with death and things like that and um, I think you know what Pete says there you know if we can look at the lessons learned from also enrollment as to how we can help solve these these problems then that's a good thing what I don't want to see is pensions kind of being used as, you know, the saviour yes, to all our, our savings ill. So the whole idea of you know, using a pension to, to save a deposit, you know, for instance, you know, your average first-time buyer's deposit, I was looking at something the other day, it's 40000 to £50,000 pounds, and how long would it take the average person to save that in their pension that, you know, if they're then taking that out for that deposit, you know, they're then left with nothing and, you know, at what point do they start to make real gains in their pension saving to give themselves, you know, a decent income in retirement, you know, it just doesn't it just doesn't stack up. As Pete said, you know, we've got the LISA there as well. Is that saying if that that's not working, you know, do we need to be looking at that? And also, you know, where, you know, where does it end? You know, today we're talking about early access for house you know, house deposits. But as I said earlier, what about those people in severe financial difficulty? You know, if we're opening the door to one group of people, will we then open the door to other people?
0: James Brokenshire, the, the Communities and Housing Secretary, did suggest last year that first-time buyers might be allowed uh, to rate their pensions specifically to, to purchase a home. It irks um, Phil Brown of the, the People's Pension, I believe, at the time. This question of, of increasing demand, though, Peter, if I can come back to you, I mean, it's not surely just about increasing the number of people. You're also increasing demand by increasing access to housing, by by effectively not subsidizing, but giving more people who previously couldn't afford a deposit access to a deposit does increase demands on the housing market. If the problem is that there aren't enough houses to go around, we don't want to sort of go back over old ground, but surely that would have an inflationary effect on housing prices, sort of like help to buy it, would it not?
1: Well, if someone leaves a rental property to go into a, a, an owner-occupier property, they've still only got one property. The number of people, the number of houses available and the number of people who want a home uh, is what's driving supply and demand. Now, we do have a problem in this country that there aren't enough houses. Um, there, there isn't the, the permissions are being given to property developers. They're not developing those permissions at a fast enough rate. There's all sorts of issues uh, that need to be resolved, and we have a housing minister, we have a building industry, uh, we have a a mortgage lending industry, and they're working on those challenges. I think the pensions industry, the the little bit of the jigsaw where we can help is helping people get the deposit. The Pensions Policy Institute published a good paper a couple of months back now where they highlighted that people who are renting are worse off during their working lives financially and then considerably worse off in retirement because they're worse off during their financial lives, if we can help them moving from renting to owner-occupying, we increase their disposable income, which includes money they can spend, but also money they could choose to save for their retirement. And again, it gets into that virtuous cycle. But I I don't don't see how helping people move from renting to owner-occupying is going to increase the demand for the number of houses.
0: I mean, I I should probably declare a a Almost a lack of interest in this because I, I escaped this particular vicious cycle by not going for housing. I live on a boat, so it's not my problem. But um, <laughs> for those for those people whose problem it is, Helen, um, I mean, it took I think almost a decade. And the, the wage, average wages, for instance, I think they only got back to a sort of pre two thousand and eight levels shortly before this coronavirus crisis uh, struck. Mm-hmm. And even during that very long recovery, you saw uh, auto enrollment, you saw defined contribution pensions not picking up the slack left by. Defined benefit schemes. There's still a problem of uh, too few contributions going in. Given that we're now probably heading into a prolonged period of, of quite significant financial uncertainty, will people even have very much of a pot to raid if indeed that were the policy that were implemented? Can, can you see a, a problem of too little money being available just in general?
2: I just think that you know when we think about auto enrollment we've got to remember we're still in the very very early days of auto enrolment. Um, and, you know, you know, in that time, we've got 10 million extra people contributing. Fair enough, you know. The levels of contribution there's a lot of discussion there as to what we can do to kind of raise that but I think also what auto enrollment does is that it normalizes contributing to a pension which is really really powerful you know we will get to a point where people coming into the workforce you know it will just be a given that they contribute to a pension as part of their wages and you know that is kind of a you know, Setting them for the future. And I just think getting into that habit is, is just vitally important. And I think, you know, a lot of this discussion around early access to, you know, to fund um, house deposits and, and, and such, you know, kind of gets in the way of that. You know, a pension is there, you know, for your long term financial stability in your retirement. And if people are going through the auto enrollment process and not coming out with a good outcome, you know, what does that mean?
0: And Peter, I mean, that, that seems to sort of feed back into how, how we began, isn't it? I mean, is it the case then that it's not about raiding pensions, as you say, It's but you can learn the lessons from things like auto-enrolment and maybe erect a, a separate sort of side scheme to help with these deposits? Is, is that, do you think, the way forward? Would it be a success? And I suppose more more pertinently, do you think even if it would be a success, the government is likely to, to go down that road? I think it would be popular and successful.
1: I mean, we We did research where 70% of people... In their 20s said that they would put more money away for the long term so we didn't ask them about pensions we were asking about long-term savings 70 percent would put more money away for the long term if that included flexibility to help them go on the housing ladder and 60 to 65 percent of people in their 30s and then their 40s said that they would put more money away for the long term if there was flexibility to help them in times of extreme hardship so we know that it would be popular to 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 have that type of savings approach The lessons we can learn from auto-enrolment is that we try to engage people for decades prior to auto-enrolment on the need to save for the retirement. Auto-enrolment is successful because it uses behavioural finance techniques and its directive in its nature. And people generally follow the direction from the government. We've seen that not just with auto-enrolment, but also with COVID guidelines, notwithstanding some of the current shenanigans at the moment, but people generally follow government guidance. And if we can come up with a directive approach that applies those same behavioural finance techniques to solve the other two critical savings challenges that we face as a nation, it's worth exploring.
0: Certainly sounds it. Like, I, I missed a trick at the beginning. I should have asked you both what decimal of lockdown you're in today. But um, that's fine. Like, like we're red.
1: <laughs> whatever, whatever decimal that is, we're red. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I've even lost track myself. Um, I think on that delicate note, we'll move on then. um, We'll go to the NHS pension scheme. On the subjects of coronavirus, you would think doctors, nurses, NHS staff in general have quite enough to be dealing with at the moment without having to worry about their pensions as well. Uh, But it seems they are not quite so lucky. Um, There are, of course, many benefits to being in the NHS pension scheme if you can get them. But per our report on this from October the 19th, Ongoing administration issues, including processing errors leading to incorrect allocations and records of contributions, uh, GP pension payments not being made on time, employer contributions being deducted for staff who've already left. Um, they've seen some GPs turn their hour on capita, which has been responsible for the delivery of the NHS, England's primary care support services since September uh, 2015. Um, Helen, do you want to kick us off on this one? Are these? I don't remember the last time I, I covered a big public sector pension scheme without bringing up some kind of data problem or data issue are these part and parcel of being in large unwieldy public sector schemes or is there something sort of unique or particular going on here
2: i mean the short answer is that you know it, it shouldn't be, and you know reading you know that coverage is is absolutely hair raising. I mean, as you say, on the one hand you've got these terrible stories of the you know, tech not working, contributions not being taken. I think there was an example of a lady that had to scan 15 years' worth of her payslips to prove kind of that contributions had been made that she was being told weren't. It's an absolutely you know terrible situation. You know the fact that, you know, in the 21st century, you know, they're still referring to kind of paper documentation rather than you're saying that online portals aren't working properly. is kind of really, really unnerving. And then, you know, as you mentioned in your intro, you know, this isn't the only issue that, you know, kind of GPs and, and consultants, for instance, are having at the moment. I mean, you know, there was a lot of coverage around the issues that a lot of, you know, consultants are having with the annual allowance. And we, we, we kind of had consultants being hit with massive tax bills that they weren't expecting because they breached annual allowance limits we we're hearing stories of gps um, and consultants retiring early because they just couldn't deal with with the, the administrative complexity and difficulty which obviously in a time of coronavirus and we need all the experienced hands on deck that we can get you know is is really really frightening
0: peter do you have, do you have a, an opinion on this is this a just a problem with the sheer size of the scheme, or are there things that really should have been done better?
1: I think there's. I think there's challenges with the complexity of the scheme and the, the end-to-end infrastructure. It's critical in pensions administration, as we all found out in the early days of auto enrolment, that there's, a, there's an absolute alignment at all points in time between what you've earned, how that translates into pensions entitlement, and how it feeds through to the administration systems. I mean, this scheme's got different accrual rates before '95, before 2008. Uh, up to 2015 and we've got locums in the industry who are working for multiple employers with little pops of salary that give them pensions entitlement and what seems to be going on is that there seems to be contributions that are missing or applied incorrectly and i think i mean it's it's, it's for the scheme sponsors the trustees uh, the scheme administrators to get through and start this out but i'd go for a three-stage approach the first thing you need to do is you need to cap the problem you need to stop any further Uh, ...incorrect or missing records accruing, because unless you can put a cap on it, it's just going to keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger, and the the rectification project will be enormous. The second thing I would do is is put in place a reactive process for people who are closer to retirement, a help desk, where we can help people who are coming up for retirement sort their records out as a priority and maybe tell people that are further away that we will get round to them. And phase three, if, if I was in that scenario, I'd be working with the pension dashboard on a proactive piece when that's up and running to populate the dashboard with all these records, knowing that some of them will be wrong, but then write to people and say, we need you to go and check those records on that dashboard and come back to us with the, the records that are missing or incorrect and then sort it out. But it's a big job. It's a big scheme. It's complicated, and it sounds like there's a lot, an awful lot of admin challenges there. Indeed,
0: it does. I mean, on the subjects of the dashboard, obviously, there's a lot of data work being done now in preparation for the introduction of of the dashboard. And of course, public sector schemes have got the McLeod remedy, which is also causing them to go through and review an awful lot of data. Are these opportunities then for schemes like the NHS pension scheme to, I suppose you could say, put their house in order? I think so. I mean, the first challenge
1: is going to be taking all of that data and digitizing it and getting onto the dashboard. But we can see from the bill going through Parliament at the moment, that's going to become a mandatory requirement. Everybody's going to be required to go through that pain, if you like. But having gone that through that pain, it then makes it much, much easier to engage with each individual scheme member uh, or customer, depending which type of product you have, uh, you know, to check, well, is that actually correct? And if it's not, then how do we, how do we go about sorting it out? It's got many, many uses.
0: Helen, I don't know if this is an element of confirmation bias, but I don't seem to cover as many data-related stories when I'm looking at DC as I do when I'm looking at DB. Is, is that? Why is that the case? Is that the case, firstly? Is it the case that actually DC pensions are just much easier to manage? And if that is the case, why is it the case?
2: Um, I think a lot of it would come down to just the fact that, you know, a lot of GB pension schemes, you know, maybe have longer histories, and the fact that a lot of their records may well still be paper based rather than digitised. I know that, for instance, when I was a journalist, I covered things like GMP equalisation and things like that. And the amount of pension schemes I spoke to that were literally talking about, you know, there being, you know, a massive room in the basement with, with, you know, all of these records in there, you know, that shows that there's there's an enormous challenge here and that things can fall through the cracks. Whereas I do think with with defined contribution, um, that is, you know, much less of, of, of an issue.
1: I would absolutely agree, Helen. I was, I was nodding away there. Yes, I mean, they, they, they are they're older schemes. DC evolved decades after DB, and they're on slightly more modern systems, maybe not as modern as we'd all like them to be. And it, it is a much simpler, a much simpler concept for, from an administrative point of view. I mean, we've heard in the past... That The the DB part of the industry didn't want to participate in the dashboard because a lot of the records are paper-based. But to me, that wasn't an excuse. That's a problem statement. And, you know, the, the doctor's scheme is bringing that problem statement to life. You need to digitize it to then engage with people to solve the problem. It will never get solved if all of these issues are contained in shoeboxes behind the scenes somewhere. Yeah,
2: absolutely. Completely agree. I mean, I think one of the examples thinking in your coverage on this was, you know, um, of people, you know, having to go in and being sent these massive Excel spreadsheets and having to go in and, you know, amend, you know, all the information they were given, you know, often going, you know, years and years back and taking people, you know, days and days of their own time to do that. They shouldn't have to do that in order to make sure that their pension records are up to date.
0: I suppose not. But then again, it is their money at stake at the moment. And apparently the scheme isn't doing it for them. I think that brings us roughly to the end of the programme. So thank you both Peter and Helen for joining us. Of course, we are still all mindful that we don't want to go up the tiers of lockdown, but we do here want to get the R rate of our podcast up. So um, please remember to like, subscribe, share it and all the rest. We will be back in two weeks time and we will see you then.